It's so good to be with you, and thank you very much for having me, for having us. And it's great to be with you also if you're watching this at home, if you're watching it on TV, uh, over the internet, whatever. Hi. Hi, Mum. Great to see you. Um, if you have a Bible, do you want to turn to Exodus chapter 3? Exodus chapter 3. I thought it would be good if we're starting a conference looking at the subject of awe and wonder, to spend the opening session looking at awe and wonder at the name of God, awe and wonder at the name, the glory, the character, the essence of who God is. And so I wanted to look together with you, if that's all right, at Exodus chapter 3, and to look at how it is that encountering awe at God, which we might otherwise call the fear of God, or reverence for God, or wonder in God, but that encountering the awe and wonder of God actually is the best way of banishing fear and of stepping out in faith. And that the way we can learn that is to read about the story of, in some ways, the first person in Scripture who encountered God in his fiery awesomeness and asked him who he was and got a threefold answer of who he was and then was able to do probably the most courageous thing that anyone in that point of Israel's history had had to do, arguably the most courageous thing that anyone's had to do, and that man was Moses. And we're going to look together at a story in Exodus 3 that shows us awe and wonder at God, and that in doing that, I trust what it'll help you do is not just to encounter awe in God for yourself, I hope so, but also to see why awe and wonder in God is the foundation for living a life of faith and a life free from fear. So that's where we're going to go. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 3, and I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. I want to stop there for a moment. And we'll read the story a bit at a time, okay? The angel of the, whoa, that's the angel of the Lord appearing out of the flame of the microphone and the speakers up here. The the, Moses meets God, and he doesn't even know it's God at the moment. He just knows it's a bush that's on fire. But it's worth stopping to think for a moment why it is that God so often appears as fire. And why that mixture that we experience when we encounter a fire of wanting to go near it but not too near is also appropriate to God. Now, how it is that we experience awe and wonder, in a way, I think fire is a bit of a wonder. I think when you approach fire, there is something miraculous about it. It captivates me. I stare at it. I see it flickering. I want to get near. I think, oh, it's really, really nice. No, that's a little bit too close. That sense of dynamic of staring at something and being amazed by its power and its radiance and its brightness, and yet when it gets a little bit too big or too bright, we back off. And we have that, don't we, that dynamic, when any time you see, I don't mean a fire as in, you know, a flame, like a Bunsen burner or a lighter. I mean when you see a proper fire, like when I set a bonfire for my son's birthday in my garden two years ago and made it a little too big and it got too near the shed and it started taking out the fence, right? And it starts to burn like, and it's like instead of being this side, and I, my father-in-law's a fireman, he was very good about it and sorted it all out. But it's a fit like fire breaks everywhere. But it's sort of from here, up here, and then down to there. That's kind of fire. There is something really frightening about it. And the line between thinking, this is fantastic, this is warming and beautiful, and it's always cold on November the 5th. You step outside and see the fire. You want to get near, but there comes a moment where you're terrified and you have to back off. I think this is getting out of control. I don't know how to constrain this power that I now seem to have unleashed. Quick, somebody call the fire. Oh, no, my father-in-law, that's fine. You can come and sort it. That kind of dynamic 
and in some ways is appropriate to that which we have when we approach God. And we come to God and in his burning brightness, we see him and the heat and the fire of who he is and we want to draw close. And he invites us to draw close. And often, some of us have just had it in the last few minutes as we've been worshiping. That as we draw close somewhere, there's a line that we feel we are approaching the glory of God and we are caught between a desire to come closer to the warmth and the glory and beauty and brightness and to get further away from something that we find in its way truly uncontrollable and almost terrifying in its power. There's a, there's a space, isn't there, that you can, on winter nights when there's a, burn, a bonfire, where you can stand a little bit like you can stand a yard this side, you're too hot, you stand back two yards, you're too cold. There's that kind of space. And God invites us to come in, but at the same time, never to be flippant with the glorious reality. And this is what Moses sees. And he stops and sees this burning bush. The angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it wasn't consumed. And that tells me something about the way in which we're supposed to associate the fire of God, and, like fire and the glory of God. We're not supposed to think, oh, God is a burning fire in that he wants to destroy everything. Because the bush is burning, but it's not consumed. It's intended to show us this bush is aflame with the radiance and brightness and otherness and the heat of God, but it's not trying to destroy things. It's not that kind of presence. So when you encounter the fear of God, as Moses will in a moment, you encounter the awe of God, that's not because God is fundamentally trying to destroy you. And God does destroy people sometimes. But that's not the motive of God in appearing to Moses here or in appearing to you. God's intention to draw you close, but to have you at a place of reverence that you not be destroyed, but he's not trying to destroy you in the first place. And so we know that the bush is not consumed, and that's an encouragement to me, because if God wanted to consume me, he wouldn't need to look very far for reasons to do that. And I dare say the same is true of you. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. He's not scared yet, you notice. right? Hey, there's a bush that's on fire. It's not being consumed. Oh, it's now starting a conversation. Nothing to move on, nothing to see here. Like, it seems like that's the kind of thing that happens in Moses. No, and I'm, I'm kind of joking. I don't think it happens in his normal day, but you'll notice that Moses is not afraid of the fire or the bush, or even the voice. We'll see what he's afraid of in a moment. But he's not, even, he's not afraid of miracles. He's not afraid of dramatic, miraculous happenings in front of him. Moses has grown up in the Egyptian courts. He's very familiar with what we might now call magic. He's very familiar with idolatry. He's familiar with what we would also call demons and gods with a small g. He's grown up with them. He's grown up as an Israelite, but he's grown up in the court. So he, he knows about gods. He's not intimidated by a deity. That's not what frightens him, as we'll see in a moment, at all. So he just starts this conversation with the bush. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take the sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now he's scared. He's not frightened by a bush. 
A talking bush? A talking bush that's a flame and not being, con- not being cons- uh, consumed. He's frightened by the idea that the God to whom he is speaking is the God of history. It's the God of Abraham. It's this God that he's scared of. Then suddenly he backs off and hides his face because he realizes that the name of God that has just been spoken means that he is in interaction with the creator God, the real God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who said, Abraham, you're going to have as many descendants as those stars, the God who appeared to Jacob at Bethel. That God, that's terrifying. You meet a deity on the way to breakfast. You walk past a godlike being or a demonic creature or an angelic creature, any, whatever it is, Moses is saying, ah, that's not what frightens him. The moment Moses hides his face in fear is when he realizes that God who is speaking to him is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's the real God, the God of history. And in that moment, he's hiding because he recognizes, I can't look at this God. I could look at many. I could look at a miracle, but I can't look at him without being terrified. And so he's hiding his face because he's afraid to look at God. It's the second time in a couple of chapters Moses has been afraid. The previous chapter Moses was afraid because he's been caught, or he's been seen, murdering someone. He kills an Egyptian in vengeance. And as a result, it's found out, and Pharaoh finds out about it, and it says Moses was afraid. And he runs, he hides, he spends 40 years running, effectively, in a different nation. Whereas here, we find he's afraid in a very different way. Instead of being afraid of Pharaoh, who's trying to kill him, he's afraid of God, who's wanting to use him to save them. And I find that often that dynamic is the the options available for us in the Christian life. And you'll find it again and again in the Bible. You can fear your enemy, or you can fear the Lord, but you can't do both. Because actually, when you, are fr- when you are afraid of the Lord, the fear, as we'll see in a moment, the fear of your enemy is driven out. And often when we are afraid of Pharaoh, it's because we're not necessarily afraid of God. When we experience the awe and wonder of God, it suddenly drives out any space for to be frightened of the enemy. And you'll see it again and again in the Bible, where Jesus again and again says to his disciples, don't be afraid. You don't mean afraid of me. You, if you have responded that way with confidence and trust and awe at me, you don't need to be afraid of anyone else. When John falls down at the feet of the risen Lord Jesus, when he sees him in Revelation chapter 1, Jesus stretches out his hand and says, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. You're, you've responded with fear to me. That means you don't need to be afraid of death itself. If you're afraid of the Lord, you don't need to be afraid of anything or anybody else. And Moses here finds he's now afraid of God and instead of being afraid of Pharaoh as he was a chapter ago, and that's going to come in very useful with the mission that he's been called to do. So he's, the reason Moses is frightened here is because he's recognized who it is that he's dealing with. The name of God, and so there's three names I mentioned in this passage and this is the first one. The name of God that's been revealed to him here is, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And when Moses knows who it is he's talking to, he's terrified. It's the first name to consider. Now, I've had the experience at times of realizing who it is you're talking to or you're hearing from and getting a fright. I don't know if you've had the experience of being in a conversation with someone and then you realize who it is. And sometimes that might be like a formal thing where you, you're, I don't know, it always happens in, on TV, doesn't it? You're talking to someone and you're giving them a real earful and then you find out it's your boss or the prime minister or whatever it is. That kind of dynamic, I've had that once or twice. I had it 
Uh, when we were first married, you'll, some of you will meet Rachel tomorrow. She's going to speak in, in, uh, along with me tomorrow as well. And uh, when we were first married, um, I, Rachel woke up one night to go to the loo. I'm just lying in bed, and I'm half asleep. And we had a group of um, Spanish students who lived in a house on the other side of the street. And they were, being, they were pretty raucous at times, and so we knew who they were, and there was far more of them in one house than ought to be true of any dwelling. And there was an awful lot of noise coming out of it in the middle of the night. It was kind of annoying, and you sort of think, you live in the middle of a town center in a flat, you get a bit cheesed off by that kind of thing. But I just thought, oh, don't worry. I'm trying to go back to sleep. Rachel's gone to the loo. One of our neighbors does not take it quite so well as I am taking it at the point, and opens the sash window down, you know, further down the street, and like as angry as I've probably heard a human being. Shut up! Get out of bed! Shut up! You dumb people are children! Like, absolutely, like, this woman is not going to recover for some days from the screaming fit. And then Rachel goes back from the bathroom and comes into the bedroom, and I just say, hey, one of our neighbors just lost it with the Spanish students. And she goes, that was me. At <laughs> a moment like that, there is a fear that comes upon you as a husband, you think, wait, whoa, 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 whoa. You guys made too much noise at two in the morning. I have the potential to cause you more damage than those guys. I am not gonna do anything bad. I am now, a f I hid my face. I was afraid to look at Rachel. Like, it's a silly example, but have you experienced the examples of, a uh, uh, more serious example, perhaps, of a guy I know who, they had a series of meetings as um, young people, teenagers, uh, and they were having prayer meetings in the garden shed. And it turned out to be a place that they could go. And there was 16, 17 prayer meetings in the shed because they didn't want to get known by their parents. That's what they were doing. And they started having these powerful encounters with God. And there was this one guy who didn't really, he was new to this kind of thing, never experienced the power of God moving. And he comes into this meeting and he's so frightened of the fact that God is at work and is touching people that he runs out into the garden and goes, God is in the shed, God's in the shed, God, God is in the shed. And then people are saying, no, no, seriously, it's all right. You go, no, you don't understand. God is in your mum's shed. It's just this wonderful example of what happens when you suddenly realize who it is you're talking to. Moses is not frightened of a bush or a miracle or a deity. He's frightened by the reality that this is the real God face to face with him. So should we be, to a, in a good way. And as we are afraid of him, we find being afraid of Pharaoh disappears from our minds. Whoever the Pharaoh is for you. And so Moses hides his face because he's afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I've come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey to the place of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. This is a God of justice, right? I'm not going to major on this point, but do you hear? I have seen what's happened to you. I have heard. I know your sufferings, and I'm going to save you. I am going to deliver you. This is who God is. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I've also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, but I will be with you. 
And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I'm convinced that in moments in Scripture, when people ask God a question and God doesn't answer it, there is something for us to learn. There's usually something to learn about the kinds of things we want to know and the kinds of things God wants to tell us. And in this story, Moses' question reflects in a slightly uncomfortable way the question of our generation. And by the way, in the Bible, generations are groups of people alive on the earth at once rather than, you know, father to, you know, grandfather to the next generation. So it's not like when I say our generation, I don't mean people around 40. I mean people alive now, right? Our generation, this culture that most of us live in, in fact, probably to some degree, all of us are touched by the culture of modernity in the Western world today is obsessed with the question, who am I? That's Moses' question in this story. And God doesn't answer at all. In fact, God acts as if he hasn't even said it and instead answers the question, God, who are you? And you know just what happens. But who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and that I should do these mighty things? And God looks at him as if to say, what a stupid question. I will be with you. Why? Well, how your mind jumps about. I'm talking about the fact that you're going to go and deliver Pharaoh. I'm going to use you to deliver Israel from Pharaoh. And you want to know who you are? Why is that the question? Now, that's our question a lot of the time. And by the way, there is a, there is a place for knowing. Of course, there's a place for knowing who we are in Christ, right? I teach that stuff a lot. Like, that's good. We're doing a whole preaching series on it this next term. Let's learn who we are in Christ, but let's keep the focus there on who we are in Christ, and let's not allow ourselves to become as obsessed as the world often is with the question, but who am I? Tell me enough good things about myself that I'll feel okay to go and take on this task. That's not God's response to Moses at all. Moses says, who am I? And God's like, what's that got to do with it? I'm going with you. I had a, a woman who helped me preach a lot when I started preaching, and I was in my mid-20s, was beginning to do quite a lot of preaching in the church. And she was a really, really smart woman, and she was a university lecturer, was very experienced at delivering presentations, and she said, I'd, I'd just love to meet up and see if I can give any help, and she was just brilliant, really helped me. We met up for over about a year, and one of the very first things she said to me was, she said, have you noticed that when you're preaching as a young guy, you often say things like, this is kind of, I know this is just what I think, or I know this, is, this may not be your perspective on this, but this is the way I see it, or this is what I think. She said, stop doing that. Stop doing that. Nobody cares at all, really, what you think and why. People are, I'm only listening to anything you're saying. I don't expect you to know anything at the age of 25. She said it nicer than this, but this was the gist. I don't expect you to know anything. I'm not listening to you because you're you. I'm listening to you because you're speaking from the Word of God. And if it is the Word of God, you mustn't apologize for it. And if it isn't the Word of God, you shouldn't say it. And I thought, yeah, point well made. And... Somebody says that to you at a formative age, you realize, I think God is doing something of that to Moses. And Moses is coming and saying, who am I? And God's saying, that's not the issue. That's never been the issue. I will be with you. I will draw them out with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. To be honest, Moses, some of the time, all you're going to have to say is a couple of phrases, and then I'll tell you how it's going to happen. Here's the mighty thing you're going to have to do. You're going to have to lift a stick. Can you do that? Can you lift a stick? And Moses goes, oh, yeah, I can lift a stick. And he goes, that's all you're going to have to do. You lift that stick and the river will part. You lift that stick and frogs will come out of the clear blue sky and afflict the entire nation. You lift that stick and the river will turn to blood. Because my stick. 
Who are you is not the issue. And for many of us it is. We live in a generation in which that question has dominated. And it can, if we're not careful and wise, seep into the church. So more and more we just want to hear who we are and how great we are going to be if we do these things and accomplish great things. And believe me, I... I'm filled with faith about God, what God will do through us when we take God seriously, and the mighty things he will do, but it's because he does it through the stick. He does it through the mighty hand and an outstretched arm. He doesn't, he doesn't do it because you and I are great. He doesn't do it because I know lots of stuff, and then I learn, I'm 25, I can, here's my opinion, I've read a lot of books. That's not why God cares. God says, who are you is not the question, who am I is not the question. The question is, who am I, the Lord God? I'm going with you. And that's, of course, where he wants to remind Moses to spend his focus and his time. Then, and this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time, just these final few verses. Then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what's his name? What shall I say to them? Now, again, it's good to notice when questions appear in Scripture that we wouldn't ask. And that may or may not be the question you'd have asked, but it wouldn't have been the question I would have asked. Some of us are from cultures, parts of the world, in which names are far more significant than they are in the kind of British culture that I've grown up in. But in, main, in much of secular Britain, names are irrelevant, and a lot of people don't even know what their own name means. A lot of us don't. I don't know how many people, in fact, why don't we do this, okay? If you know what both your first name and your last name mean in this room, could you just give a little clap for a clapometer? Okay? If you don't know what both of your names mean, could you clap now? Right. So, in a room full of Christians, many of us are Christians, most of us probably, in a room full of Christians who read the Bible and even know what the biblical names mean, some of them are printed in our holy book, we have still got more than half the room, probably a lot more than half the room, who don't know what our names mean. And I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying it's just common. People in our world don't often think names are that important. Now, in many parts of the world, they do. And some of us are from parts of the world where names mean a great deal. And I love having conversations with people from parts of the world where names mean a lot because you get to have dialogue about why they're named what they are, why their parents chose the name, maybe what their father or mother's name was, why that name was chosen, and so on. Because there's a whole family heritage tied up in a name. Well, biblical culture is like that. It's more like the culture you'd find in many parts of the world than the culture we find in Britain. Unfortunately, when people do that with me, they come and say, ah, a Wilson. What is a Wilson? And I say, it's a son of Will. And then they say, and what is an Andrew? And I say, well, I'm afraid Andrew just means man. And then they say, and why did your parents give you this name? And I say, because I th think they like the sound of the name. And then they say, what was your father's name? And I'll say, Charles Wilson. What does Wilson mean, son of Will? What does Charles mean? And I'll say, that astonishingly also means man. <laughs> and so we just go on. Why did your parents choose? Why did your grandparents choose his name? I think they like the word. And so it goes on. It's a very boring story and doesn't illuminate anything about my family. But in many parts of the world, you have that conversation and you find, wow, there's a whole family history embodied in this name. Just thinking, once upon a time, Guy Miller would have been a guide to grinding flour. Isn't that a really cool thing? Just think, guy means guide, miller means maker of flour. 
Heather Miller, obviously married into the name, so probably wasn't her ancestry, but Heather Miller sadly just means we, we tried to make flour out of heaven, and it didn't work that well, so we, we needed a guide, and so we went and got one. Or Joe Petch, I found out. Uh, the Petches, you know, Stephen Joe Petch, and Joe was up leading worship for us. Petch, I looked it up, I was like, it means peach. And in fact, the entry I found on Wikipedia even said, so the Petches were originally peachy people. And I just thought, what a fantastic thing to be able to say. Peachy people. I told Steve earlier, and it's made his day, that his family was originally peachy. Now, I, we don't do that in main, most of British culture. That's not that common. In biblical culture, it's incredibly important. When Abraham's name gets changed to Abraham, it is his entire prophetic destiny summed up by inserting the letter H into his name. You're not just exalted father. You are father of many nations, right? It happens all the time. And Moses is wanting at this point to go back and say, so if I say, if the people ask me, what's his name, what do I tell them? Which might not be your question, but it's a very important question in his culture. Now, he's already heard one of the three names that are going to be revealed. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But he's saying, is, how, am I then to, how am I to refer to you? Is that the name I'm supposed to use? Or is there another name you'd rather I used? When the people are... When I tell them we're going to get out of Egypt, and because you've heard from God, they're going to say, which God? What are you talking? Which God do you mean? What's his name? And then Moses is saying, what do I say when they say that? And he said, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now, the thing you notice about human names is that they are always derived from somebody else's naming of us or activity for us, in the sense that my name, Andrew Mann, is because there are such things as men, and there are lots of them. And I'm basically being named to identify me with the general class of man. And I'm named Wilson because I'm the son of somebody called Will, and he was named Will because of somebody else. And the whole way down the chain, you know, a miller is named, so named because there are such people as people who make flour and so on. And all the way through, we name ourselves with reference to someone else. And so my wife, Rachel, is named after a Hebrew word for a sheep. And okay, that might not be the most flattering comparison, but that's what we are, we're naming people after a thing. My children are called, Ezekiel means God strengthens me. Samuel means God hears. Anna means grace. But they're all referring to aspects of God and drawing his identity into our names as a way of what we do is we orient ourselves with reference to another reality that's been here before and that will be here after us. But God doesn't do that. There is no such being from whom God could derive his identity. There's nowhere where you could look and say, well, God is the one who did this because there was a moment before he did that and he was still there, just being. You can't just say God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because that would imply that God's identity was bound up with the existence of Abraham and God existed long before there was an Abraham. You can't even call him the creator because God was, existed in blissful Trinitarian delights for trillions of years before there was a creation. The only way God can identify himself in that sense without pegging his identity to someone else's is to make his name entirely about his being. And so he simply says, I am that I am. This is the God of eternity, 
This is the God of total independence from any other creature. A God who, unlike everything he's ever made, is not contingent on the existence of something else, but exists from his own glory, and that's it. So when he speaks, he says, I am that I am. And there is nothing else in a sense that I could draw my identity or sense or purpose or existence from. I am the source of all being. My name means always or forever or being or eternal or whatever it may be. But I am that which goes before and will be hereafter everything else. I am that I am. So don't try and put me and define me by the thing that you want me to be. I may well be that as well, but that's not the essence of who I am. I am that I am. I don't know if you've seen the movie Schindler's List, but when they introduce um, the character of Oscar Schindler, he's a very brazen, uh, sort of arrogant man near the start of the movie, and he comes in and sits down, and in fact, the table looks very much like this one. And he sits down at this table and sits down, and he's trying to charm, he's about to start charming the room to win them all over because he's a salesman. And he sits down, and he's just sort of smoking and looking very powerful and cool and whatever. And he looks around the room, and then he says, to, just holds up some money, and a waiter appears out of nowhere and says, yes, sir. And Shinder's sitting there, and he says, send a, a bottle of wine to that table over there. And the man's like, I don't know who you are, but okay. And then he just leans in, and he goes, but, but who shall I say they are from? And we're expecting him to give his name. And he just says, you can say they are from me. What it communicates when you do that is a sense of such utter... I mean, in, the, in this story, it's intended to communicate arrogance, right? You can say they're from me. I don't need to give my name. You need to say they're from me. They will know who I am. But you see, what it communicates is someone who is so utterly confident in their being that they don't need to define themselves with reference to your categories. God is not doing that as an arrogant man, however. God is doing that as the source of all being, the source of all life, the source of eternity. We get to pray. That's a great privilege of my job. I sometimes get to pray alongside leaders in the Chinese house church. And I don't, my, my Mandarin is not as good as it ought to be. That is to say, I don't know any Mandarin at all. And so when they're praying, there's somebody translating so we can understand and they are praying out. And it's wonderful. When they introduce God, I, I don't know how you begin your prayers, Typically, you know, Lord or Jesus or Father, whatever, all good. But it's wonderful. They say, this, they say this little short thing in Mandarin, and the translator says, God of eternity. And then they carry on praying. And I always struck that. Every time I've heard them pray, the translator has translated it, God of eternity. And I find myself, there's a weight that comes upon me, even hearing that name for God, thinking this is who we're talking about. We are talking about I am that I am, with the one from whom you hide your face, the one who has always been, the God of history, but the God of eternity, the I am that I am. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. And that's where we're going to stop reading the text, right? Say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, which is a kind of very summed up form of I am that I am, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob has sent me. And you tell them that and they won't need to know anything else. But the name that God, there's a third name that God wants to give us, which is not just the name of the God of history, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, 
And it's not even just the God of eternity. I am that I am. It is the God of the covenant. It's the God who is making a promise and a commitment to a very specific group of people that he is going to love them and be merciful to them and show compassion to them. He's going to judge the wicked, but he's going to show mercy for thousands of generations to the people who love him. And that name, the Lord, which God says, I want you to call me this throughout all generations, that name is then used 6,800 times in the rest of your Old Testament. Usually in most of our Bibles, it isn't translated as Yahweh or Jehovah. It's translated as the Lord in capital letters. But that's the name that God gives effectively as a shortened version of I am that I am and as a summary that he is this God, the God who was in the burning bush. The God who has always been is independent of anybody else, but nevertheless, everybody else draws their meaning in life from him. The God who was there to lead Israel out through the Red Sea, the God who appeared to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that God is the God we confess, the God we gather to, the God we praise. And when we meet him, we hide our face. We experience a sense of awe and wonder at him. There's an older woman in our church a few years ago who I happened to be having dinner with when she made what I thought was rather an amusing comment. This woman was a, a fairly, I don't know, she was a fairly fiery old lady, I think it would be fair to say. Um, the pastor who planted our church was a pretty tough guy himself, but the only person I ever saw him run away from and hide was this woman, right? She would walk, you know sometimes they do this? Fists clenched, arms lowered like like this, and you, the, the, the finger would come up at you like this. She was a fierce lady, right? A godly woman, but a pretty fierce woman as well. Now, I'm giving you a measure because it's relevant to the story. And she's sitting over a meal table, and she says this. When I eventually meet Jesus, I shall be very interested to ask him if I was right about the person who was vetoing the East Grinstead Bypass. And there was a long pause as we tried to process this surprising piece of information. And then she said, I don't know his name, but I do know where he lives, which makes the whole story a whole lot scarier. Now, I'm a young pastor. I'm not going to weigh in at this point to this lady. I respect her and admire her and grateful for her. But I think had I had my wits about me, I might have said something like, no, no, no. When you meet God, you are going to fall at his feet as John did, as if dead. You're going to look to hide your face, and then he's going to have to say to you, you can get up now. Don't worry. It's okay. I'm for you. I've conquered death and hell. You don't have to bow down. You don't have to hide on your face. I will lift you up so you can stand and look me in the face. But believe me, that will be your impulse. It will not be about the bypass. It will not be about whether or not you were right about where the guy lived. You are not going to be thinking about that. His feet will be on fire. He will be speaking to you with eyes blazing like a furnace. And when you see him and hear the voice like mighty rushing waters, you are not going to be debating East Grinstead's. You are going to be hiding from him, and he will have to say to you, get up. It's all right. It's me. I love you. I'm for you. But your reaction will not be the one that, and it's a silly story, but some of us do do that. Some of us think, when I meet God, I'm going to have words with him about that thing that happened to me when I was 21. Some of you have said that. I think I've probably said that at some point in my life. There's a sense of, I'm entitled to some sort of God's on my hook, and I'm going to clarify what he thought he was doing when he, this happened to me. And when you meet the God who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the I am that I am, and revealed as the Lord, that will not be your discussion, and it won't be mine. 
we will be bowing down before him and worshiping him for being the God of eternity, the God of history, the God of the covenant. But you know what? And I'm going to finish with this. But there is a moment in fearing God. I've talked a little bit about the reverence and all we feel for God. And I said that one of the things I wanted to do was to explain why fearing God would drive out fear of other people. And I also said one of the things we're going to do is show you how the fear of God leads you to live a life of faith. Because in going through this a verse at a time, one of the things you can miss is that the big picture of this story is that God is commissioning Moses to do something incredibly scary, and he doesn't think he's qualified, and he wants to talk about himself, but God says, I don't care who you are, but I am, and now go. And that Moses goes, and the mighty Egyptian empire comes to its knees, and the horse and rider are drowned in the sea. And Israel becomes a nation and inherits their own land. And we are still living in the generation after generation result of those events three and a half thousand years ago today. And so we mustn't miss the big picture that God is revealing this stuff about himself because he wants to send a frightened man to go and do something that he's currently scared of and God's going to give him the faith to do it. And there is something that happens when you fear God that empowers you not to fear other people. Because what happens is when you fear God and you realize how large, when you are in awe of God, you are less awed by other people. You have suddenly become very aware of how big and scary he is in comparison to the person who looks big and scary to you but really doesn't look big and scary to God. So I want to finish by talking about the Gruffalo. You may not know the story of the Gruffalo. If you're not based in the UK, it may be not a story you've read, but it is important that you know the details. A mouse took a stroll through a deep, dark wood. And a fox saw the mouse, and the mouse looked good. Where are you going to, little brown mouse? Come and have lunch in my underground house. It's awfully kind of you, fox, but no. I'm going to have lunch with a gruffalo. A gruffalo? What's a gruffalo? A gruffalo? Why, didn't you know? He has terrible tusks and terrible claws and terrible teeth in his terrible jaws. Where are you meeting him? Oh, here, by these rocks. And his favorite food is roasted fox. <gasps> roasted fox? I'm off, fox said goodbye, little mouse, and away he sped. Silly old fox. Doesn't he know? There's no such thing as a gruffalo. And so the story goes on like that. He meets an owl, and the owl is also frightened by the idea of this gruffalo. Oh, owl, I scream. To wit, to woo. Goodbye, little mouse, and away owl flew. Silly old owl. Doesn't he know there's no such thing as a gruffalo? Scrambled snake, it's time I hit. Goodbye, little mouse. And away snake slid. Silly old snake. And so he meets all of these creatures, and you and I know there's no gruffalo, no such being that would be frightening to these creatures who are larger than the mouse. The mouse just making it up. Silly old, silly old snake. Doesn't he know there's no such thing as a gruffalo? But who is this creature with terrible claws and terrible teeth and his terrible jaws? He has normally knees and turned out toes and a poisonous water at the end of his nose. His eyes are orange, his tongue is black, he has purple prickles all over his back. Oh, help, oh no, it's a gruffalo! <laughs> wait, 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 wait. You're halfway through the story. You have not seen the spirit of Moses in this story yet. <laughs> now, Children at this point get reveal number one. So I've got a three-year-old boy, right? The, the three-year-old child gets the reveal. Oh, until now, we didn't think there was a Gruffalo, but now there is. Ha, 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 ha. Isn't that an interesting story? But we're only halfway through the story, and you guys clapped. You guys don't even know what a three-year-old knows. They know that the story's only halfway done, right? Because the book's that thick, and we're only halfway through. So then this is what happens. 
My favourite food, the Gruffalo said. You'll taste good on a slice of bread. Good, said the mouse. Don't call me good. I'm the scariest creature in this wood. Just walk behind me and soon you'll see everyone is afraid of me. All right, said the Gruffalo, bursting with laughter. You go ahead and I'll follow after. At this point, the three-year-old starts to get excited because they know what's going to happen. Because they know that the mouse is now going to approach these scary creatures who are scarier than him, but they're nothing like as scary as the Gruffalo. And then the creatures, because they're really stupid creatures, are going to see the Gruffalo, and they're going to run away, and they're going to go sliding back to their log pile house. And meanwhile, the mouse, because the Gruffalo is also quite stupid, the mouse is going to carry on through life, knowing that because he's got this giant, scary creature behind him, no one is going to be worried about whether or not they're going to eat him, because they're so terrified of the big guy. So that's what happens. They walked a while, till the Gruffalo said, I hear a hiss in the leaves ahead. It's Snake, said the mouse. Why, Snake, hello. Snake took one look at the Gruffalo. Oh, crumbs, said the snake. Goodbye, little mouse, and off he slid to his log pile house. You see, said the mouse, I told you so. Amazing, said the Gruffalo. They walked some more, till the Gruffalo said, I hear a hoot in the leaves ahead. It's Owl, said the mouse. Why, Owl, hello. Owl took one look at the Gruffalo. Oh, oh, crumbs, goodbye, little mouse. And off he flew to his log pile house, and so on. And it goes all the way through until all of these animals have been met. And at the very end of it, the mouse then turns to the Gruffalo and says, Well, Gruffalo, you see, everyone is afraid of me, but now my tummy's beginning to rumble, and my favorite food is Gruffalo crumble. Gruffalo crumble, the Gruffalo said, and quick as the wind, he turned and fled. All was quiet in the deep, dark wood. A mouse found a nut, and the nut was good. Now, what the three-year-old knows, and what the mouse knows, is it's not about the mouse. It's not about the mouse. They're not scared for a moment of the mouse. They are scared of the giant I am being right behind him. And because they're frightened of him, the mouse can be incredibly bold in confronting all of his enemies. The mouse can walk into the court of Pharaoh himself, and say to him, I am telling you, I'm going to turn the, the river into blood. I'm telling you to let my people go. And Moses and Pharaoh and, and Pharaoh and his courtiers are going to have to look at the mouse. And they're going to say, that's ridiculous. And then they're going to see the Gruffalo, the I am that I am. And they're going to go, oh, crumbs, goodbye, little Moses. And off they fly into the Red Sea and drown a thousand deaths because they're not able to withstand the power of the almighty God who stands behind Moses. It's not about the mouse. It's not about you either, by the way. It's not about Moses. It's not about me. I go into my scary environment, whatever it may be, and your pharaoh and your fox, your owl, your snake will be different from mine. But when you walk into that context, that family situation, work situation, mission situation, there are creatures there that are bigger and scarier than you. But there is one behind you who is far greater. And the question at that point is not, who am I that I should take on the owl? The question is like, but I will be with you. And if I am with you, you don't have anything to be afraid of. You can choose to fear them or you can choose to fear me, but you can't do both. It's not about the mouse and it's not about you. And living a life of awe and wonder before Almighty God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the I am that I am, and the Lord, the God of the covenant, not only means that the fears that we often legitimately have of the foxes and snakes and owls and pharaohs in our world, not only means that those fears are relativized, but it means that you and I are able to step out in boldness, knowing that we stand in awe and wonder who is far greater than any of those problems. We stand in awe and wonder of the God of the fire, 
who can consume Pharaoh in a moment. We stand in awe and wonder of the God who is able to calm the storm with a word shush. We stand in awe and wonder of the God who's able to part the Red Sea as if it really doesn't matter, allow people to go through and shut it whenever he wants. We stand in awe and wonder of the I am that I am who has sent us out into the world to serve as his representatives. Amen? Should we stand? Let me just pray. Father, we are so pleased that you are bigger, greater, more powerful, stronger, but also so much more loving, approachable, tender, kind, compassionate than any other God or power or demon or angel or any power in heaven and earth. We are, you are so much bigger, so much stronger than any of the threats that I or anyone in this room are going to face in the course of our lifetimes. You are mighty. You are glorious. You are great. And we are so thankful that you are. And I pray that as we sing and as we just turn some of this revelation back to praise, that you would solidify our hearts in faith mixed with awe, that the awe that we have in you would not lead us to cower and hide as much as to stand boldly, knowing the one in front of whom we can cower and hide, but the from whom we have then stood up and approached in victory, approached all of the enemies, God, that we might have to face and speak to them in the name of the God who created everything, the God who was there that day when he spoke to Moses. Lord, we want to go in his name, not worrying about who we are, but mindful of who you are. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here for whom this might be exactly what they needed to hear tonight, that you would minister by your Holy Spirit now, not only the, the theory, but the practical reality of being secure in the love and yet almighty power of God. And I pray this in his glorious name. Amen.